welcome to the Child Life On Call podcast. When your child is sick, the whole world seems to stop in its tracks. Plans and priorities change and your number one job becomes figuring out how to get your child well again. For some of us, rest, medications, and relaxation can do the trick, but for others, it takes more. It takes countless doctor appointments, invasive medical testing, therapy, surgeries, the list goes on, and then you still may not have all of the answers or results you were hoping for. This podcast features parents of children that have an illness or medical condition and gives them a place to share their own journeys and experiences. We will talk about the ups and the downs, the highs and the lows, but one thing seems to remain the same. Children are resilient and teach us more about ourselves and the world than we could ever imagine. Thank you so much for lending a listening ear and opening up your heart to these families and this podcast. I'm your host, Katie Taylor. I didn't know if my child would walk and here she is bumping into her sister. It's so (laughs) silly and so insignificant for a child to bump into another child, but I didn't know if my kid would ever walk. That was Kelly, and you will get to hear more from her in a minute when she talks to us about her incredible daughter, who is thriving despite receiving two rare diagnoses shortly after she was born. So, hi world! Welcome to the first official episode of the Child Life On Call podcast. This is actually happening, and I couldn't be more excited. To give you a bit of background about me, I'm Katie. Hi, I live in Austin, Texas, and I am a certified child life specialist. And most of you are probably wondering what the heck that is, so let me give you what we call the elevator speech. We help kids and families in the hospital cope with and understand all that comes along with it. The longer version is that we are child development experts who support the psychosocial well-being of children and families while they're in the hospital. So we work in all areas from the emergency room, the OR, the ICU, outpatient areas, and pretty much any unit we can sneak our way into. Being a child life specialist is an incredible honor, and it's not just a job for any of us. It's our passion. I knew that becoming a parent would change my perspective about my job, and to be honest, I didn't know if it would help or hurt me. And thankfully, the transition into parenthood ignited a fire in me to continue to pursue my passion, and thus, this podcast was born. I sincerely want to thank my family, friends, and the parents who have already reached out to me so far to be a part of this podcast. I cannot wait to see where this journey takes us. So without further ado, I'm incredibly honored to share with you my conversation with the kind, strong, and incredible woman that is Kelly Gruen. So here, Kelly begins our conversation with telling us how she and her family ended up here in Austin, Texas. All right. Um, we're originally from San Diego. Um, well, most recently, I should say. I was born and raised there. My husband came from Northern California, but he was pretty much a local there. And that's where we had the girls and kind of started our marriage and our lives. And then in October of 2015, we moved over to Austin. So that's obviously where we are now. What's interesting about Kelly's story is that right off the bat during her first pregnancy, she and her husband got a bit of a surprise. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) It was a lot of emotions because we were actually going in because Um, I was having some like complications and things that my doctor was concerned about. So she's like, head to the ER, you know, I don't know what's going on, but you need to get checked out. 
Um, and I was really early. I was like, I want to say six ish weeks. Um, so we went into the ER, not knowing what was, what we were about to hear or be experiencing hours later after waiting and finally an ultrasound, um, actually in the ultrasound, (laughs) the radiologist came in and he's like, okay, so everything's okay. And would you like to hear the heartbeat? And I said, yes, of course. My husband's like, yeah, you know, and he plays the heartbeat. Then he stops and he's like, did you guys want to hear the second heartbeat? And I think I nearly (laughs) fell off the table in my husband's face. I will never forget. It was like, you know, incredible shock. And then I think we were silent for a moment and then we laughed and it was kind of, it was a lot of emotions to say the least. Yeah. I can't, I can't imagine that. I would have fallen off the table too. (laughs) (laughs) It was crazy, but obviously wonderful. So that's kind of where it all started. (laughs) Gotcha. Yeah. So take us from there. What happened next? Um, well, immediately they were like, when we were checking out, they're like, okay, you need to see a doctor soon. Cause I think they didn't say, but I think they had an idea that our twins were, um, possibly what's called Momo or monochorionic monoamniotic twins. So, <laughs> excuse me, we went home and that week I got in touch with my doctor. We went and saw her and after two or three appointments, we finally saw a specialist and we found out that they were Momo twins, um, which basically means that they share, they shared a placenta and one amniotic sac. So they had, um, skin to skin contact basically in the womb. So the greatest risk with that kind of twin is cord entanglement or compression, meaning that their cords can become very entangled and, it's a very high-risk pregnancy, obviously. So it was kind of a lot to take in. Monoamniotic twins are rare, with an occurrence of 1 in 35,000 to 1 in 60,000 pregnancies. Wow, I bet yeah. that was a lot to take in. <laughs> it was, because when you get a diagnosis like that and you're like, I don't know what this means, you immediately go home and you go on Dr. Google And you're like, what is going on? And then you read like these horrific, tragic, absolutely, yeah. And then like you see statistics that are most likely outdated because I think as of recently, probably in the last 10 or more, maybe 10 or 20 years, the statistics have gotten better, but um, there's still only, I want to say like 65% uh, survival rates for uh, Momo twins to make it to birth, so... Very scary. Were you monitored pretty closely then the whole pregnancy? Yes. So after we finally, like my doctor is like, okay, we're going to call it what it is because with this type of twin, um, there's also identical twins known as modi. So they share one placenta, but they're separated um, in the amniotic sac. So there's a membrane separating them. And sometimes that can be really, really hard to see. So doctors aren't like quick to diagnose Momo because they can often find the membrane, you know, 12, 13, even 14 or later weeks. So finally, at like, I want to say 15-ish weeks, my doctor's like, okay, we're going to call it what it is. They're Momos. So from that point on, we had an appointment with um, our MFM, which was our perinatologist. I don't think I'm saying that right. I just call her my MFM. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And we saw her weekly. 
And then at 24 weeks, I was admitted to my hospital. Um, so I was on hospital bed rest with 24 hour monitoring until I delivered the girls. Wow. Wow. That's a long time. When did, <laughs> it what was week did 60 you deliver? Days. Oh my gosh. I delivered. <laughs> yes. So I delivered at 31 um, weeks, four days. And another thing about Momo's, and it's kind of goes against everything we learn as far as pregnancy goes, because you want your child to be full term, you want to go 40 weeks, that's just kind of standard knowledge. But that's not the case with Momo twins. Um, in the US, it's standard practice that Momo twins are always delivered by 34 weeks, typically between 32 and 34 weeks. So um, they're delivered early because the the risk of the compression and the tanglement, just the risk um, outweighs like, you know, the risk of being born a little premature at 32, 34 weeks is better than the risk of going further, basically. Right, right. Definitely. Okay. So I guess they had kind of prepared you for that, like kind of timeline then, I guess, while you were in the hospital? They did. Yeah. So I delivered, um, it was emergency because um, our baby A, her name is Ashlyn, was having decelerations in her heart monitoring. So it was an emergency delivery, but they were going to deliver me that following Tuesday. I want to say it was like five or six days before when I was scheduled to have the girls. That is a long time to be in the hospital. Here's how Kelly passed the time. Lots of reading, um, visitors, TV. I caught up on a lot of sleep. <laughs> um, one thing I really enjoyed doing, though, is uh, the hospital I was at. I loved I loved the nurses. The facility is great. They have a wonderful um, antipartum unit for women who are high risk or, you know, need to be admitted before they want to deliver. Um, so I was making, I bought supplies and I was making like miniature diaper cakes for the other girls. Cause some people would just come, <laughs> they would come and stay like two days. And then there's women in there who were staying four weeks or whatever it may be. So I was kind of making those and the nurses because of like HIPAA and stuff, I couldn't know anything about anybody, but like the nurses could take them and deliver them for me. So, but I enjoyed doing that and it was kind of like cheered me up a little bit. So. Wow. That is so amazing. So while you're going through all this, like you're thinking of other people, that is incredible. Did, um, have you, did you like build any kind of lasting relationships? I know cause a HIPAA, you can't really get to know anybody, but did anybody come seek you out and say thank you and you keep in touch with them or, you know, not in the antipartum unit. So come to find out like later in our NICU journey, I did meet three or four women who were in their rooms around me, <laughs> but it wasn't until later conversation that we had made that connection or realized, oh, were you the one in that room? Like, <laughs> so we made that connection, but it wasn't until later, um, like I said, in the NICU when we, like, in the NICU, they provide parents um, opportunities to have meetings and meet with social workers and kind of get together and share our stories if we wanted to. Um, so that was a great outlet, but that's how I met these women. Now Kelly will talk to us about what giving birth was like to two twin girls. Yeah. So um, like I said, it was throughout the pregnancy, I had over 40. We've tried to count. I've had over 40 ultrasounds. There was no indication of anything, you know, wrong. Um, there, The things that we did know is that the girls were pretty small for their gestation. They were born at 31 and four, like I had said, but they were two pounds, seven ounces and two pounds, 14 ounces, which is kind of small for that. Um, 
gestation. So that was kind of our only concern. So I'm, you know, back there for my emergency C-section and they pull, um, luckily I didn't have to be fully put under. I was able to have um, the spinal because they did kind of prepare me in the weeks before for the emergency. I had an IV ready. I was kind of like prepped and ready at any point. So I was awake during the delivery and they pulled out Ashlyn first and she didn't cry right away. And she just, she was very small, but I can't really describe how I felt. It just, she didn't look right. There was just something that just fell off. And then when they pulled Brielle out, it was like, okay, they don't look alike. Why what's going on there? So and our doctors noticed it immediately. In fact, I was able to kiss Brielle because they wrapped her up real quickly and um, brought her to my face so I could see her. But Ash and I, they, you know, wheeled her by in a, one of the isolates. So, um, and they took her right away. So I knew immediately something was up. But of course, you're kind of sedated a little bit and you're kind of out of it. So it was kind of um, hard to know what was going on at that point. Um, yeah, so I didn't actually like the whole procedural part of all of it and just kind of the anxiety that goes along with delivering your first babies, your first set of twins. Yes. Yeah. That's, it's so true. It's like, you know, people can tell you about C-sections and this and that. And I think, you know, it's obviously something that's once you experience it yourself, it's kind of like, whoa, <laughs> Because at, at times I didn't feel like I w- could breathe and they're like, you're breathing. And I was like, I can't because you're, you know, you're numb. So that was kind of scary. But um, so, yeah, so I didn't actually see the girls until at least 12 hours after I had delivered them because I had to go and recover. Um, and then I had to wait for them to actually be ready in the NICU because the girls had to be, um, they were on ventilators and so I had to wait a little while before I could actually see them. And then again, when we went into the NICU, uh, my husband had gone over before me. But when we went in there, it was like, okay, like they don't look like what's going on there. Did the um, doctors uh, address it right away or did you have to ask questions or how did that go? Um, you know, it was brought up, but there was no like there was no guess or there was no okay, we think this is going on. There was none of that. It was, um, you know, when the children are in the womb, it's, there's so many things like they could be smushed. Like, so at first they're like, you need to give it, we need to give it some time. Like her face is obviously pretty smushed up from being like, we know that she was down below. We know that sister was jumping all over her and she was kind of in a tight spot. So they wanted to give her time to kind of just like, you know, kind of, I don't, I don't know, to grow out of like that birth, um, you know, they, yeah, I get what you I, mean. Yeah. I, I like, my, like, my son was, my son was born with like a really smushed ear and they're like, well, it may stay like that or it may, you know, end up just coming back out. You never know with these things and they're totally kind of nonchalant and cool about it. And so you really never know what to expect. Yeah, that's exactly what it was. They're like, yeah, it could be fine. So nobody was ready to say anything about it. And I think time has always been the one thing they're like, let's give it time. Let's give it time. So so what kind of um, different medical testing did she go through to find out um, what her diagnosis was eventually? And what was that process like? So in the NICU is when the genetic testing did start. At some point, and I would guess maybe around four weeks of being there, 
as they're getting older, they're coming off the vents. We're seeing her face without the stickers and the tubes. And they were like, okay, yes, we need to do some genetic testing because we're seeing her sister. They are identical. We know they're identical, like without a question of a doubt. So we do need to run some tests and see what's going on here. And she did have um, some skin tags and she had some ear malformations. So there were things they were curious about. Um, so they did genetic testing. And at that point, they would bring up names. They would say, oh, it's possibly, I want to say one of them was DeGeorge syndrome. And so, of course, my husband and I run home and we're like, what is DeGeorge syndrome? Um, it didn't end up being that. But so they did kind of drop some names of things that it could be or could not be. Um, and they ran the test and all the genetic testing that they did in the NICU came back totally clear. It was not indicating anything um, significant with her DNA or genetics. Um, so it was kind of a mystery um, as far as that went. Yeah. In some ways, do you feel like relief from that or it's like even more questions then it's, it's like, you don't even know. Yeah. At that point, I think it was, it was both. It was like, okay, it's a relief that it's not that, but like, what is it? <laughs> like, so absolutely relief of being like, okay, checking our boxes. It's not this, it's not that. Um, but still the question and wonders of, okay, well, why does she still look different? Like, that's not telling us, you know, what we're wondering. So, um, when did you guys finally get the diagnosis? What, how old was she? So they finally wrote it in her paperwork at our one year checkup, but I will say, and that was for her first diagnosis. Her first diagnosis is something called golden heart syndrome. Um, and it, we first heard that um, told to us in the NICU towards the very, very end of our stay. She was there for 80 days. So I want to say probably two weeks before we were leaving, she had to pass um, a hearing and vision and just some standard tests that they do. And it was the ENT who came in and was like, has anybody mentioned golden heart syndrome? And we're like, no, we've heard, you know, 20 other things and we've done genetic testing, but what is this golden heart syndrome? So he's like, I don't know. He's like, it's just something it could be just like looking at her vision and her nasal and her um, head shape. Um, these are indications that it's something that maybe we could look into. So he was the first one to kind of drop that name. And then, you know, we finally left the NICU and had many, many specialists and appointments. And from there on out, we would hear occasionally people saying, is this what it is? And we're like, I don't know. Somebody's mentioned it. Um, it's not actually something that would show up or be indicated on genetic testing because it's um, it's a congenital kind of defect, for lack of better terms. It's not a genetic um, syndrome. So the testing wouldn't show that. It's going to be the things that she had going on physically um, that would indicate that diagnosis. And then finally at her one year checkup, her geneticist is like, okay, we're going to call it what it is. And that's when we got the, the diagnosis. I see. So I have kind of like a logistical question for you. How did you keep up with all of the things that were thrown at you, like from the tests and the appointments and like this person says this, but this test indicated that, like, did you write everything down or did you kind of like take it day by day or what helped you the most kind of in this beginning period of the mystery of what was going on? Honestly, I think in the beginning, I really struggled. I didn't know. I think it was 
I just always wanted answers. And if somebody was going to tell me a name or like say, oh, it could be this, I was very intrigued. I would leave. I would go and study what it would be, um, which further down the road, I learned to not do that. Um, and so I think at first I was just so eager for answers. And um, I think again, later down the road, after I had been able to sit down and write about this, um, I started a blog that kind of did talk about what we were going through and everything. I realized like, I felt, I think at some point that by having that answer that like everything was going to be solved. Like, if that makes sense, like, Oh, they're going to tell us that's what it is. And that's, then we have our answer and we can move, like, everything's going to be better. Yeah. That makes complete sense. Cause it's like, Oh, you get a diagnosis and then there's treatment and that's how you fix it. Like that's kind of what you grow up thinking and, and what you think is going to happen if you find out the answer of what's going on. Yeah. It's like, re- like reaching the finish line, like, okay, we reached the finish line. And then it's like, well, now what? it's almost like I've, I've learned and realized that there really is no finish line um, and things kind of take time. And, um, but I think for the first year, even year and a half, I really struggled with that because I would, I would be so angry at times because I just wanted to walk into one appointment and I wanted them to be like, this is what your daughter has. This is what we're going to do. And that wasn't happening. (laughs) That wasn't the case. And it was pretty unrealistic. I didn't realize, but to even think that because you know, we needed to really look at her because she is unique and she isn't just a textbook case of, you know, it's not just medicine I've learned is not black and white. So there's a lot of gray area. (laughs) So, um, that was something I definitely struggled with. And you had told me that, um, you almost felt relief when you finally did get the diagnosis. And I guess that we did as well. Absolutely. And I think uh, we got the golden heart one and it was like, finally, we have something written on paper, but, um, and that was around 12 months at 17 months is when we got her, um, very significant diagnosis of caudal regression syndrome. And it was finally that day that it was nothing we expected. Um, a couple things that our doctors had mentioned was a tethered cord, which, um, can be very painful for children and adults. And, um, we kind of anticipated something. So when we got the news of that, like we were blindsided by it to say the least, but I've never felt such relief with being like, okay, we have an answer. Like, this is huge. Like, let's keep going. Yeah. Well, what kind of prognosis did they give you after you had the definitive diagnoses? Um, there was a lot of questions. So another thing that I've learned and I'm sure other special needs parents can agree with is it's there's so many different scenarios and cases and children can have mild to severe moderate conditions so it was like at that point the doctors can't even say you know she has a severe case or like she will never walk or she will walk like it's very there's still so much unknown even though you have that answer and like you think you can move on and you do start to move on like with therapies and a care plan um nobody could or would really say like, um, you know, she, she'll never walk, like I said, um, and things of that nature. One thing we did know is that it's lifelong. Um, and as of right now, there's no medical science or treatment or procedure that can, that can fully correct either of these conditions. So 
that's what we knew and how Ashlyn was going to do with these conditions. And if she was going to walk or if she's going to walk unassisted, it's kind of only time will tell type situation. What's it like to swallow that when somebody says that to you? Um, it's, it's a lot. It is a lot. Um, all the, I think the hardest part is the what ifs. You, so you immediately go to like, well, what if she can't walk? What if, what if she can't run or play sports? And like your mind goes to so many places. I think as parents, like even before your children are born, you have dreams for them, like to get married or to play softball or to be valedictorian. You have all of these dreams and wants for your children and to get a diagnosis like that, it kind of makes you question, will those dreams for your child be achievable or realistic expectations and that whole unknown, I guess. I remember like very, like it was yesterday, um, the girls. So Ashlyn wasn't walking at 18 months. She wasn't even walking at 20 months. Um, and that was something that was very, we didn't know. It was a very unsure thing. Like, are you going to, are you not going to? And I'll never forget the day that she stood unassisted. It was just like a month short of her to her second birthday. And within a couple weeks, she was taking steps. And I remember playing with the girls in their room and they had both stood up and they were being silly and playing and they were walking towards each other and they just bumped right into each other and they both fell down. And like, I laughed, like, I, I didn't know if my child would walk and here she is bumping into her sister. It's so silly and so insignificant for a child to bump into another child. But I didn't know if my kid would ever walk. I didn't even know like if that was possible. And I just remember sitting there being like, Oh my goodness, like you just stood up and bumped into your sister and you're going to, you know, bump into people as you're walking and like, you're going to walk. Like, it was just like, it was like a light went on for me. And it was just like, those are the moments we had to celebrate and they're worth celebrating just every, like, I guess your dreams change to answer your question. Like the dreams of, you know, we still have huge dreams for both of our children and, but they're, they're different in ways. Like the little achievements are so much more meaningful, like every little thing. That, that's incredible. And I, I bet it makes every day a little bit more exciting because, I mean, your dreams that are achieved each day, that's just incredible that she's able to to bring that kind of joy to your life. Absolutely. It's, it really is. It makes you just so just appreciative and it makes you very humble and it makes you realize, you know, even if she doesn't run someday, she's doing so great. Like, she's going to be able to accomplish so much and it might be differently. It might be at a different time than children her age and it might be in her own way, but she will achieve so much. So, and that's something we're seeing more and more of just, you know, she's like 31. I I don't do months anymore. She'll be three in September. And so even since her second birthday, so much we've been able to celebrate and get excited about. So. 
so on those on those days where it's really hard, like what have you found kind of helps you cope with the stress or you know, what would you recommend to somebody else who's going through a similar situation? What's helped you the most? Um, definitely taking things day by day. Like absolutely. Um like just when I see um something that's kind of new for us is I'm seeing, um, and it's one of my biggest fears of how she will be treated by others when they see that she is different or does things differently. And I'm starting to see that at the park or people walking by and staring. Um, and it's very hard for me. I try to have grace. I intentionally try to (laughs) internalize my feelings before I act upon them because, um, the mama bear in me kind of wants to stand up for her and you know if the kids are pushing her telling to hurry I just want to be like she can't like I want to explain why she can't and I mean it's a learning process for me um so I just have to have grace to have patience understand that um things aren't maybe intentional and people don't know and um so for me just taking day by day but moment by moment and scenario by scenario Um, another kind of mindset I've come to is just being okay. Like, you know, we've got our diagnosis, like for the first year and a half, two years of her life, it was, it was that finish line. Like I needed answers. I needed the finish line. I needed the magical appointment that we were going to walk into and she was going to be cured and we were going to know everything and we were going to know what she's going to be capable of. And, I realize that's not happening. Like there is no one magical appointment. There is no finish line. There's just being okay with where we are and what we're doing and celebrating the little things and just, just be okay with where you are and know that you're doing the right thing. And if you feel like something's off, just um, find new doctors or, maybe sit down and write. That's huge for me. Um, uh, support groups are huge. I guess I have a lot of advice for people. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's incredible advice. So I love that you're, you're stating all of it. It's, it's just huge. Um, thank you so much. So um, what do you think has helped Ashlyn the most throughout this experience? Absolutely. A hundred percent is her sister. Um, her sister is her greatest therapist, her greatest teacher, um, and her greatest friend because they are just two peas in a pod. But Ashlyn has such drive and strength and determination to keep up with sister and to do the things that sister is doing. And Brielle is very supportive and like very sweet to her. And helps her when she can and like pats her on her back. And, um, we, my husband and I often say, you know, if she didn't have her sister, we aren't sure that she would be doing as well as quickly as she is. Um, and even doctors have confirmed that there, you know, like there's no greater teacher than a child the same age that she gets to live with and see every day and, you know, have the determination to keep up with. So I would say absolutely, without a doubt, her sister has been her greatest teacher and source of, um, I think, just inspiration. 
yeah, I'm sure when meeting milestones, um, you know, within this kind of diagnosis, then your your daughter, because she has that teammate with her for the rest of her life, is it's pretty incredible. Yeah, absolutely. It's very it's very special. I think the twin bond. There's no denying that, and I think it's special regardless of circumstances. But the connection they have is it's different than the typical best friend twin sister connection it's it goes far beyond that I think and it goes both ways I think Ashlyn teaches Brielle a lot especially patience and um teamwork (laughs) if you could put into one word or phrase kind of what having a child like Ashlyn is like or what it's taught you what would that be this is always the hardest question for me because <laughs> I feel like I've said it before. Like, you know, I had them when I was 30 years old, so I'm, you know, a relatively older mother. <laughs> um, and I, you know, graduated college. I traveled, like I did a whole lot and I learned a whole lot and I had a lot of experiences, but I have learned and lived more in the last almost three years than I ever did. Like, it's hard to sum up in one sentence what I have learned, but I- yeah, no, I think you just <laughs> did. <laughs> I mean, that was, yeah. that was amazing. So, but mostly just, I, I think just mostly just to be okay. I think that she's taught me just to be humble, stay humble, um, to never give up, to just keep going. Um, yeah. <laughs> Well, you, you've taught me a lot, I mean, just in the past 30 minutes. And so I'm, I'm so thankful to you for being able to share this story and Ashlyn's story. And you, we have to talk about what else is going on in your life. <laughs> well, we're expecting our third bundle of joy, and it's definitely just one this time. Yes. Yay. So exciting. It was something we have wanted, um, and it's we're just very we're thrilled and it's a little boy so it's all new to us all over again (laughs) i know we are all so excited for kelly her family and her new little bundle of joy on the way and kelly i can't thank you enough for taking the time to speak with us if you are interested in learning more about ashland syndrome Kelly recommends several resources, one of which is the international network of over 800 families, and it is isacra.com. That's I-S-A-C-R-A.com. Their mission is to provide support and information to persons with sacral agenesis, caudal regression syndrome, and their families worldwide. ISACRA promotes awareness and collaborates in research and advocacy to enhance the quality of life of persons with this condition and to advance medical knowledge. Kelly also recommends rarediseases.org's network and information on Golden Heart Syndrome. Again, that's rarediseases.org, as well as a Facebook group, which is dedicated to Golden Heart Syndrome. You should be able to just search in the search bar and the group will pop up. So if you would like to connect with Kelly personally, you can follow along with her on Instagram at Kalita83, which is K-E-L-I-T-A 83 along with her blog, which is babygruins.wordpress.com. And you can follow along with her at Austin Mom's blog. Stay tuned for a quick preview of next week's episode at the end of these announcements. 
Thank you so much for tuning in to episode one of the Child Life On Call podcast. A big thank you goes to Laura Morseman Photography for donating her time and incredible skills as an artist and photographer. She took the beautiful pictures of Kelly and her family for this podcast. And if you haven't already, go check out the pictures on our Instagram account and then go follow Laura Morseman Photography. Please subscribe and leave a review for this podcast on iTunes or wherever you find your podcast. Please like our Facebook page and follow along with us on Twitter and Instagram for the latest information. If you would like to share your stories or have feedback or any questions about this podcast, you can email me directly at childlifeoncall at gmail.com or submit your information via our website, childlifepodcast.com. You know, there was a time we didn't think that, you know, she would make it to her next birthday. So hitting 18 was a real milestone for us. You just heard Michelle, mom of this now beautiful grown woman and a recent high school graduate, talk about her experience advocating for her daughter at two years old when she just knew something wasn't right. You won't want to miss it. Thanks for tuning in and make sure to check back next Monday for Michelle's episode.